Okay, good morning, everybody. Hi. So just to give you an overview of our plan for this morning, which we'd love to share together with you, we'll offer some closing reflections each a little bit, and then we'll have a, a very short, silent bathroom break if it's needed. And we'll gather back in here and we'll have a, a gathering in the middle of the room where there'll be a chance for, a, a, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so people to sh- um, speak a little bit. I'll say more about that then. And then we will end with a, a final ceremony that we like to do together every year here as a way of closing. Um, so that's the, the shape. Okay. Yes, yeah. Good. I enjoy looking into your faces. Um, I have my usual end of retreat feelings. The, they kind of, they are a little avuncular. Um, <coughs> it's a kind of uncle-like feeling. Uh, uh, um, not in a bad way, it's kind of a, it's kind of, I'm thinking, oh, these people, they have to go home now, and have we said everything that needed to be said? Have we, you know, have we prepared all the, <coughs> the Dharma sandwiches properly? <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of, I recognize that. <laughs> so, just how, um, I guess, yeah, how, how fond you, how fond. How fond I've become of you. <laughs> I guess that's the simple truth. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, as the years go go on, uh, my my the starting point of my trajectory was I was interested in meditation. Yeah. And meditation was a. a passionately individualistic pursuit. It was kind of um, me sitting on a cushion and understanding the world or getting the world straight or getting me straight. Or It was kind of a sort of um, rather heroic, a slightly testosterone-charged, me-against-the-universe sort of approach. <laughs> yeah, sort of, I very much come from a, from a Slightly existentialist Hemingway number, yeah. So kind of <laughs> old man and the sea kind of thing. And I'm taking the uh, counsel of the years uh, as graciously as I can. And one of the uh, effects of this was that basically the relational dimension has become bigger and bigger and bigger. The value of Brahma-viharas has become bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and strangely, this is also uh, has informed my reading. So when I read these old, uh, archaically-sounding texts, I keep seeing more and more pointers to the relational aspect of it in there. So... I see the relational aspect of meditation practice, the relational aspect of having, uh, (laughs) entering and engaging with one's own experience. So one of the key concepts in there is, is the concept of friendship. And there are many layers of friendship, you know, on a very obvious level, the whole notion of community, of 
the Buddha was an intensely communal, uh, communally preoccupied. You know, he said, "Okay, don't talk too much. There is empty spaces. There is trees. Sit under the trees, meditate. Don't spend your time prattling about." Okay, that's one thing he said. But then you turn the page, and he says, "You know, and after the meditation was over, uh, the monks and the nuns gathered and spoke for the rest of the night about their practice." Yeah, so you realize this deeply relational dimension to this. Um, while he found some fault with the family ideal of Brahminical society, he actually created alternative families. You know, he created what we say, what I don't know how to say in English. In German it's called Wahlverwandtschaft, which means relationship by choice or being being related by choice. There's a famous novel of Goethe with that title and somebody may know how it is translated. I don't. So we choose relationship and Sangha is a kind of the quintessential example of friendship that is a chosen one. Not necessarily by affinity or by, not even by even sympathy or by overt like-mindedness, but it is I act in relationship as a choice. So many of us feel, you know, Sangha is the kind of mythical community that so far, so far has failed to take me up. If you've ever been part of a sangha, you know it's hard work. You, know, you don't always want to be taken up. You know? And if it's more than two, basically you will have ongoing disagreements on various matters. In fact, um, we know that we can be quite disagreeing with ourselves, so it doesn't surprise us that if it's two of us, or three, or seven hundred, there's likely to be some disagreement of opinion. Nevertheless, the, the notion of friendship is central in learning, in central in growing, central in widening the heart and widening the mind. We do connect with others, and in that connection we learn about ourselves. Yeah? I'm also speaking as a psychotherapist, which they engage a little different language there. <laughs> It's very obvious that I only find out about myself by meeting you. It's only in being with you that I find out things about myself I would never have found out about myself without meeting you. Some things are only constellated when there is another, yeah, or five of us. Yeah. So let us translate that a little more. This notion of Noble friendship, Kalyana Mitata, or uh, precious friendship is another translation, uh, comes up in many, many different contexts. One context is uh, an interesting list, totally obscure list, the seven conditions that lead to the arising of the Eightfold Path. As you know, the Eightfold Path is the Buddhist answer to just about everything. Yeah? So it's the therapy part of Buddhist teaching. It's the fourth of the noble tasks. It's, it's basically what we're supposed to be doing. When you want to have one big answer, what helps, then it's always the eightfold path, or better, maybe the eight-track path. It's not a sequence, it's more parallel. So this is the big, um, the big path, is this eight dimensions of you know, practical stuff, which we're not going to go into right now. But so the arising of the Eightfold Path is fostered by two major conditions. One of them is wise investigation, of which inside meditation practice is a quintessential 
part. Yeah? So turning in appropriate ways to one's own experience and beginning to investigate one's own experience is one of the great factors that bring about the Eightfold Path. Uh, early Buddhism is particularly rich in encouragement how to sift through one experience, how to fathom one's own processes, how to investigate, examine, hold. Um, you know, there's countless words in Pali for for the for the uh, deepening into. I like the word fathoming. You know, this is kind of standing at the f- at the bow of a ship, dropping uh, a weight to find how much water you have under your keel. Yeah, that's the old idea. You kind of you plumb the depths quite literally. Yeah. And this type of attitude towards one's own experience, in an appropriate form of attention is what liberates you from the things that create suffering. Now, I find that uh, one of the most empowering statements. Yeah, I don't need to take refuge into a god. I don't need to propitiate divinities. I don't need to get the right magic spells. I don't need to find the right techniques. But I can turn with appropriate attention to investigate the dynamic of this heart, this mind, this body, and the processes arising therein, And within those dynamics, I find the key to freedom, to awakening, to growing up in a big way. I find it one of the most empowering spiritual statements. And the other quality, no surprise, the other quality that leads to the arising of the Eightfold Path is friendship. It's the cultivation of friendship. That begins with meeting people who share my aspiration, that begins with connecting in a, on a maybe deeper level to connect with one's own inner friend. Yeah. I, let me psychologize that a bit. One notion of that friend is what I have internalized from meeting friends in my life and been internalizing these, this kind of relationship in my heart. So I, when I take refuge, I also take refuge not just to the Buddha, I'm actually taking refuge to my inner friend. I remind myself of my inner friend. This is a particularly great friend. I'm glad he's figured out a few things I don't have to do. Uh, I can tag along. Uh, We're all sort of in the slipstream of the Buddha in my books. Some of his virtues still resound through the ages, and I'm very, very grateful that I... I can uh, tag along basically two and a half millennia afterwards. I'm grateful I don't have to figure the pieces out. He has figured out and I only uh, can translate some of them and I try to do my best to do this. So friendship has become precious to me. Now there are some interesting statements made about friendship. One of them is qualities of a friend. So let me tell you a few of the qualities of a good friend. So one of these qualities is a good friend is somebody who inspires love yeah, and affection. Pia is the word. Yeah? Uh, uh, somebody who inspires affection in me. Somebody who inspires respect in me. Yeah? A good friend is somebody who inspires the wish for emulation of his or her qualities. So a good friend is somebody whom I wish to emulate in his or her qualities. A good friend is somebody who is capable of listening. 
Now, you realize how precious this is because there's something happening when we move into a space of deep listening. We all love it. We all thrive on it. If somebody listens, turns their attention, opens us in, welcomes us in. Discernment, depth, welcoming, all qualities of wisdom and metta. A good friend is somebody who is capable of giving counsel. (coughs) Notice the sequence, first listening, then giving counsel. This is not always the case. Some counsel is almost in substitute of trying to listen. We all know that too well. So a good friend is somebody who is capable and willing to engage in deep subjects. Somebody who is interested in deep stuff. It's nice. In Thailand you have terms for friends. So there's some friends are friends for eating. This is the Puyen Gin. You have many uh, you have many friends for eating. Generally, when you have enough to eat, you quickly have friends. You know? In a culture which, instead of saying, hello, how are you, says, hello, have you eaten already? <laughs> you, know, you, have, you quickly have friends for, for eating. So, we, we generally have enough. And then there's the friends who are there for dying. Yeah? Those are the Puyen Dai. It is understood that you have many Puyen Gin and you have few Puyen Dai. Yeah. So I think there's an interesting distinction there. Not many people whom you may be uh, feeling affectionate towards are necessarily the friends whom you will hold deep topics, deep subjects dear in your life. And finally, a friend is somebody who has your interests at heart. In other words, he or she helps you to not waste time, not waste attention, not waste money, not waste resources. So somebody who looks out that you're doing what it takes for you to get the best possible version of yourself. Yeah. It's kind of like he, he holds you dear and he holds dear what he senses or she senses you carry in yourself. Yeah. I think that's an interesting little list. Yeah. So love, respect, emulation, deep listening, able to give counsel, able to be interested in deep subjects, and somebody who looks out that you don't squander your capacities, that you don't waste your talents. There's a tiny uh, little text buried in the Samyutta, in the group of discourses on the topic of mindfulness, establishing mindfulness. Samyutta Nikaya, the text is called Seda Khan. It tells the story of two acrobats. Um, these are clearly people of low caste in the description. And um, we have to imagine basically a grown-up man who is referred to by the younger acrobat who is a girl. Probably, I would say, it's, it's a preteen girl by what, what we make out from the text. Uh, she had to be rescued. Uh, some of the commentators tried to turn her into a boy, but she then was rescued by some more straight people, and she is actually a girl. <laughs> some some of the Burmese commentators tried to <laughs> turn her into a boy. <laughs> She's a girl. She has the unflattering name of Frying Pan. 
it is not quite clear why she has acquired that name. The you know sociological thinking would assume that this is obviously something she had a lot to deal with, frying pans, which wouldn't be unthinkable that little girls end up in the kitchen. I personally have another theory. I think uh, she got that name because of some of the acrobatics she was doing. I think she was doing something we would probably call planking today. You know, so the acrobat had a bamboo pole. They would move from village to village, and he had a sort of leather part where the bamboo pole would be fixated somewhere in his hip, and the girl would climb on his body and then onto the bamboo pole and do tricks at the top of the bamboo pole. And I suspect she was doing things, you know, in the vertical. That's probably where her name comes from. But that's just a um, very, very apocryphal exegesis. So don't take that. Too serious. <laughs> so anyway, the girl and the boy, the girl and uh, the master, as he is referred to by the girl, go there and he gives her an exhortation and says, you know, um, when we do our tricks, let's make sure that we're safe. Uh, the way to be safe is I take care of you, you take care of me, and so both are taken care of. We'll do our tricks, we'll get some money, and we'll be safe. That's plausible enough. And then the girl says, no, master, this is not how it works. Uh, and she says, I take care of myself, you take care of yourself, and in this way both of us are taken care of. We'll get some money after having done the tricks and we'll be safe. So this is a, a narrative that the Buddha tells to his monks. So this is a framed narrative. He tells that story to the monks and then he sides with the girl. You know, it's unusual that the girl disagrees with her patriarchal boss, basically. And it seems even more unlikely that the Buddha sides with the girl and says, in this case, the girl is completely right. She, you know, you take care of yourself and then you take care uh, and, by, and, and he takes care of himself. And in this case, both of them are taken care of. Yeah. And then after having stated that, he adds a dialectical twist and says, but by taking care of oneself, one takes care of others. And by taking care of others, one takes care of oneself. And how does one take care? Taking care of oneself, <coughs> one's own practice of satipatthana, how does one take care of others? And then he says, first, uh, one takes care uh, of others by taking care of one's own practice by following after. The word is asevana. So by giving careful application, by cultivation, and by frequent practice, does one take care not just of oneself in the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, but by doing so, one takes care of others. And how does one take care of oneself by taking care of others? And then he says, um, basically by forbearance. This is a beautiful old-fashioned world. We would probably call this today non-reactivity. Yeah. So the word is kshanti, which means I am willing to stay sensitive, determinedly sensitive, and not react on my impulses when being with others. Yeah. The old word forbearance is very powerful for me still. You know, it's the willingness to bear something. So by forbearance, by nonviolence, by affection again, and by compassion. Yeah. In this way, practicing with others, I take care of myself. So 
you have forbearance, you have non-violence, you have affection, and you have compassion. This is the practices doing, you do that with others, and these practices take care of yourself. In this way, one takes care of others when one takes care of oneself, and one takes care of oneself when one takes care of others. Yeah. So in an ingenious little spin, what he started off by giving right to the girl who said, look, you have to start with yourself when taking care. You know? I think the Buddha values the pragmatism in the girl's take there. And he sides with her. But then he says, in doing so, it's not actually mutually exclusive. There is a dialectic to this. When I look after myself, I also look after others. And when I look after others, I also look after myself. Which I think is a beautiful way of weaving in individualism and altruism uh, in one and the same attitude of practice. So I'd le like to leave it at that and wish you well. Yeah. getting a little busy up here on the stage. So we, um, yes. Gosh, there's so much I would love to share with you in closing. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to. Um, hmm. When Akinchino said avuncular, he was feeling avuncularly towards you, us. I, I wasn't joking. I only found out what that meant about two years ago. Um, but, but, but I know now what it means. Um, um, you know, and the ordinary mind, my ordinary mind says, so, okay, so what, so am I auntie? <laughs> and that doesn't, that would only be if I was coming from the top down, you know, like translating somebody else's story. But as I sit here and um, uh, gaze upon you, I, I, I feel actually a little shaky. Um, And I, I don't know all what it is, but there's um, sometimes for me in leaving a retreat, there's a, you know, as, the, as part of the teaching team, there's been a certain degree of holding and caring, and that starts to unravel now. So there's a kind of releasing or unbinding, not in any sense of un, um, being unwilling to take that shape, but there's a kind of loosening and there's a kind of a sort of shakiness happening. I think it also happened, as, as Akinchino talked about, friends that we could die with, or friends, friends to eat with and friends to die with, and just being reminded of um, loved ones and close ones, and where I'm in those relationships of the friends who I eat with, and where I'm in those relationships of the friends I may be called to die with. And that, that's part of this, too. That. That non-fixedness of my place, like I can't just put myself in a package and present something, 
really our offering and our impact in the world is as we take our seat with exactly what's here, right? And I think part of this um, sort of, it's a little bit kind of cool and cold inside with a lot of warmth also, but there's a kind of chilly part that's kind of melting, melting slowly. I think like that bucket last night, did you see that melting fast, that one? Did you see that? Wasn't that incredible? Thank you for um, participating. I, I, you know, I try not to bring the comparing mind, but that was the best fire and the best bucket. (laughs) (laughs) So far that we've had over the years as we've tried that. Yeah, and I's nailed it. There's a kind of a this 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 looking out of um, not that I have the answers, but I have some perspectives of where do we go? Where do you go from here? And what's needed? What do we need together um, on so many levels? And you know, in the light of so much that our world gives us, that is beautiful and incredible, and so much that the world shows to us that is calling for care and calling for responses that we may not have found before. So I think part of it is this also. Do you have to go, Marcia? I'm so sorry. So if I could... I think maybe to take a Kinchino's point of this caring for self and caring for other and where and how far that extends. Um, in this retreat, we have given a lot of emphasis to body as body. Right? And I hope that's been really beneficial for you personally to see what that can start to open up for us, that things slow down and we can start to see more and investigate in a way that, that we can see more clearly, start to see, even if it's difficult things. And then remembering that this body, there is no body outside of the context that that body partakes in, is embedded in. So the body of the earth below, the body of our communities, our societies, our nations, our lands, our planet, our cosmos. There is no body. If we come with that hero's uh, metaphor that, that he said at the beginning where the meditation is a, is a singular journey and I kind of dive in in that heroic way, beautiful. But as we start to see that body does not, does not, there is no body apart from the context of that body. So if one of the bhavanas of our era, one of the cultivations of our era is the restoring for those of us who may have privileged other ways of knowing, privileged the, the distancing 
in order for the gains that can be got intellectually and um, uh, what's the other word I want to use? Materially, thank you. <laughs> I forgot the word. Intellectually and materially, for, for, for the gains in that, there's something that we see that that's not only not enough to satisfy an individual soul, that on its own it leads in directions that are devastating for person, society, and planet. I want to um, refer to one author that maybe some of you have read and know, who's from these lands, Robert, Robin Wall Kimmerer. She is um, uh, from, I think, the Potawatomi group, yeah, uh, peoples. And she is also a scientist, um, well-versed and in, as a, a, a doctor of botany, I believe. And she has a beautiful book, and I really encourage you to read her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, if you haven't yet. And she is someone in that book, she, she sings a love song to the earth with her love of her science and all that it shows and all the brilliance of that and the gifts of her other worldview that are not even married together. They are a seamless tree in themselves, right? She hasn't just put them together from the top down. She is, she is, it's, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And she's there holding probably more, but in this case, this lens, the precious seeing instruments, yes, of what has been given by the beautiful modern, the, the beauty that can be there in the precision and the clarity of the, the, the scientific view, absolutely. And she brings the lenses of the precious seeing instruments that she comes and is born of her peoples and through her body and through her seeing. And yes, yeah, quite stunning. But she says many, many things. One of the things she talks about is, um, she says in, in a different group than hers, in a different peoples, in the Apache language, that the word for mind has the same root etymology as the word for land, right? So it's, it's not, they, have, they haven't had to do that thing of splitting it apart yet. And she gives beautiful, um, beautiful, beautiful understandings of this. Well, so there's not a, a separating of those. It's not denying mind. It's not reifying earth. It's not making and um, saying that we have the last word on the, the, the earth and the land. But she says, so this, this root is the same, she says when she takes her students, her PhD students, um, um, root gathering, right? so they're botanists, when she takes them root gathering, she says many, many things, and the roots in the earth, almost like a map of, the, of those pathways that we think of mind up here, but those pathways this week that we've been studying through the chitta, this, we could say, this interface, if we're joining together what may have been only abstract to the, to the, to the body of the earth, that that collecting of roots, that tending to roots, that caring as her students bend down and um, have their hands immersed with their bright understandings and all that she brings into that. She says many, many interesting things. I'll leave it to you to read it, but one of the, 
one of the things she says, and I, I was reflecting on this with you as I look out upon you. Um, see if, if your study of the mind, right, this week, the chitta, the heart-mind, and maybe chitta could also be translated as heart-mind-body, because where that, the contiguity of where this is, if we look thoroughly and deeply, we will say, see, as we tend, if we tend to the roots of our mind, tend, bring ourselves into a relationship of reciprocity and looking deeply here, that that, the way we do that will be the same way that we attend to our relationship and this inevitable intimacy of our relationship with the body of the earth. One of the things she said, this is what I was thinking about when I, see if, this, uh, see if you relate to this, after root gathering, so translate the metaphor for your retreat this week, whether you're gathering or, or smelling or touching or seeing or just tending in that quiet way. She says, after root gathering, metaphor for the New Year's retreat, After root gathering, my students are always different after root gathering. There is something tender in them and open, as if they are emerging from the embrace of arms they did not know were there. After root gathering, after a New Year's retreat, my students are different. There is something tender in them and open, as if they are emerging from the arms of something they did not know was there. Unless we find a way to enter into a reciprocal relationship with our body, with our mind, with matter without reducing our body or our mind or our heart or the word matter or another person's body or another person's mind without reducing them to one single way of seeing them unless we enter this way we will be repeating business as usual. And business as usual is not viable. We still embrace economic systems that suggest there's such a thing as infinite growth on a finite planet. Unless we find ways to enter together, not alone, because this is not something we can do alone. When I was, got to Heathrow Airport coming here, you know, some years ago I made a sort of personal commitment to, okay, I want to take care of my carbon usage and et cetera, et cetera. And I got to Heathrow Airport this time and it was like, wow, look, gosh, and I'm in it too. If we burn and use everything, all the carbon that we can burn and use, we will not have a viable planet in not very long time at all. How do I engage this 
with you, with us. And I wrote to the Sangha in Finland, where I'm due to go in a few weeks, and I said, how do we engage this question? I have to fly there, and, or I don't, I could go by train. Even that is, how do we do this? How do we do this if business as usual isn't an option? How do we do this now? Because I love to come here. I love to come here. I learn so much by being with North Americans. I learn so much. Um, and, and I trust there's a kind of cross-fertilization. You know? So I could look at it intellectually or personally. Yeah, personally, it's good. It's a good thing I'm doing. Right? But how do, we, how do we have this conversation now? Because it's not just about personal choice, really. And one thing I love about, um, as I understand the monastic order of this living in reciprocity, as I understand it, from my having friends and seeing the, the, what the Buddha had offered there as a framework, is that there's a, 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 a sh- um, frame is that call them to live in reciprocity, act that inevitable covenant that is the covenant of our, of our world, right? Every, for every breathing animal, there's a breathing plant. There's a, an exchange, an ongoing exchange, right? And as I understand it, there's well-understood ways of living in reciprocity and acting from that knowledge and acting as if we're going to stay. You know, that's what we've been practicing this week, staying, 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 staying. And what does it mean to live as if we're going to stay in the knowledge that, of course, we will die? but the knowledge that we will stay, because in staying, yes, I actually actually benefit myself. Because if I don't learn to stay, my mind takes me again and again and again into a journey of perpetual hitchhiking at best and spinning samsara, turning again and again and again. So we learn to stay because I see for myself, and this is good, It's good that it's good for you, and it's good that it's good for me personally. If I stay, my mind slows down, I look more deeply, and I get more sense of more possibilities. The faith deepens, the the willingness to put in the effort deepens, and I go further. And if I live the best as I can, as if I'm going to stay, opening that precious seeing lens, the precious seeing lens of original peoples of all places and all times. That living as if we're going to stay means living for the generations who come after us, the seven generations. Can we stay? Can we stay and have the conversations we need to have together and all that that entails? Because that same view is the view that calls for our conversations of justice and injustice and inequality. When I see the other body, when I see the land as something for me to use, then I've lost what my ancestors knew. In the hard-won journey from calling someone a soul to becoming a self, to at times we are seen as not even selves, but as consumers. Can I join that?
back to my roots that are here and now. To what I can learn from my roots and the roots of all stories who learn and know how to stay. This is not easy, but this is our work. Because our mind cultivation is our mind cultivation. If we open the concept, does not stop or start. So these are friends that I don't just eat with. We are friends that I don't only eat with. I hope we are friends that we can breathe together also. And right now, please breathe from the earth up. Because none of us has to do this alone. That's the other story that belongs to the old story. Oh, blimey, I have to fix this now. Shit. Drop your weight into the earth. Breathe out and let the earth breathe up through you. And in honor of everything that has made you, you. All the gifts you have inherited, the blind spots, the pains, the strengths, the nobility, the aspiration, the willingness to stay all that your ancestors knew. Breathe out. Let's be friends that we can breathe with, we can speak with, we can go forward together with. And many of you, I know, deeply working in ways at all the levels of these systems we inhabit for benefit, and I thank you for that. Whether it's the waking up in the morning and being willing to look at our own mind, that is our work. At times, that's what we can manage. Whether it's the work you do as in your service of community, of people, as scientist, as artist, as offerer, as someone who takes care of their neighbor and brings them a meal when they're sick. In the ways, the million ways that you do it, whether we're tending really close and whether in tending close, we can open wide. Let's keep practicing. Well, actually more than just a moment. If you need to, uh, there, there is an intention, and we're just running a little in a different time frame, shall we say. <laughs> but if you need to adjust your body in any way at this moment, take a moment to do that. and Just let there be some ease.
<coughs> so far as is possible. In some ways, the uh, shortest version of the the closing talk that one could give and that I sometimes do give in situations such as this is to simply say that it's good what we've been doing. Keep doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And everything else is... (laughs) And sometimes I do manage to stop there. (laughs) But also I tend to want to... uh, articulate a little bit more of actually what that means, as we have been hearing already. And some simple perspectives and suggestions that I think are useful. To know that as we've come into a retreat like this, and we've gone through a process of transition that you will have, back in the far distant past, remember what it was like those first two or three days, where there might have been the odd sense of bumpiness or scratchiness or sort of a transition and conditions changing. As we end the retreat and move on to whatever else is in front of you in your life, going home, to work, to family, to travel, whatever might be happening, again, this is a transition. And you'll feel already, I imagine, the impact, the sense of how that is to be moving into changing conditions that are, of course, always changing, but are changing in clearer, stronger, and more particular ways into the world of speaking, into the world of action, into the world of actually having to catch my next transport connection or something will happen. If we, get, if we miss the beginning of the sitting, mostly it's not like the retreat's gone and we're left there by ourselves and everyone else is somewhere else. That would get us to the sitting on time if it were the case, I suspect. But it's not what happens. And just noticing how it is for us as we start to enter this world where suddenly, again, we're talking with people and we feel that whole kind of constellation of, of me and them and the complexity, the sweetness and the trickiness that that brings in for us and that, that framework of friendliness with ourselves and with each other is such a useful framework to hold. So go slowly and gently as you move forward. Take it easy. It's a bit like if you've been fasting for a week. The way to break your fast is not a four-course meal plus pudding. It's something simple, nourishing, and easily digestible. And here too, we've in a way fasted. We've kind of reduced the amount we've taken in. So go slowly. Don't try and watch all the videos and read all the emails and eat all the pizza that you missed this week. Or whatever it is you've been thinking, I can't wait until I get. Whatever that is, just go slowly with it. Give your body, heart and mind time to process the process of this retreat. Which continues, in fact, for at least the length of the time we were in the retreat the very immediate effects of the retreat will still be ripening and showing themselves. And, in fact, the retreat continues beyond that because what this retreat has been for you will only be known in your life as it moves forward. So although it ends, it, and this may or may not be good news, it doesn't end. <laughs> it continues. Stop. Pause, find space for yourself to take care of yourself as you go forward. 
as we've made space here for ourselves to come on retreat and to be close to our experience, it's such an essential and important thing to remember, understand and commit to, I would say. Find space where you don't fill it up with useful, beautiful, wonderful, helpful things, all of which are great to have in one's life and all of which can also become more than as sustainable, digestible and actually wise. The ability to stop and say, I can't do it all for everyone, all the time. I need to make space. I need to stop. I need to maybe sit also quietly with friends who like to do the same, to find support for practice and to recognize the value of absence. Where space or non-activity isn't an, a lack, it's actually a something. In my diary, I regularly have to put things in where I say, there's nothing here and it's full. Do you get that? It's nothing here and it's full. Because otherwise, some really good, nice, enjoyable thing will get in there and something else is lost. That's a discipline and a challenge for most of us in the world that we live in that is constantly encouraging, inviting, cajoling us to do more, consume more, be more active in so many ways that aren't necessarily what most deeply fulfill us. It requires a degree of courage to live in a way authentically with one's own truth. And when we find that courage in ourselves, you will find there are many other people who are seeking to live in this way too. And it's so important to understand, to not look out into the world and just see what the news media tends to report, which is often distressing, depressing, horrific, tragic, or just endeavoring to be sort of general entertainment to distract us from all the other stuff. There is actually so much nobility. There is actually so much courage. There is actually so much dedication and commitment and wisdom and skill in the human community in our world. <coughs> and to seek out, be part of, give support to all of that. There's a certain humility in understanding that what is needing attention that is of concern in the world, in ourselves, we are not separate from this. And I am always struck and enjoy to relate the memory of a story as someone told me of a, an overpass in London where the traffic grinds to a halt every day for what probably feels like hours for the people who commute and are stuck there going almost nowhere for a long time. And it says on the overpass, this graffiti says, you are not in a traffic jam. You are the traffic jam. <laughs> And I think something delightful about the place in which we can see, oh yes, we, we are part of what is created here. I am being deeply touched by the, by the movement and the power that's now become known and recognized as we too, as, sorry, as me too. A sense of actually standing up and people, in, in the most case, of course, women, but also beings of other genders, expressing a sense of acknowledgement of some form of harm 
and structural systemic behavior that is profoundly unwell and needs to be addressed. In this case, of course, in, in terms of uh, abusive behavior, sexually abusive behavior, behavior specifically, the Me Too movement. And that sense of where we can support and give support to communities and individuals who need to speak their truth and be heard and be respected in informing us collectively of what has been happening and is happening in our world, where it's not easy to hear, but we are all diminished by not listening and harmed by not responding to what we need to hear. So I'm deeply touched by this and the, the movements and the, the, the calls for, for justice in relationship to, um, in terms of issues of race, of, of sexuality, of gender, of religious communities and cultures and ethnicities and nationalities and so many different realms and areas of human experience where this needs attention. And there's a part for me that's always important to stop and that why I confused the hashtag. That of course the hashtag we all know, me too. But there's also a hashtag that isn't out there that I sometimes feel which is the we too. The we too hashtag. Which is that, oh, in certain ways I and I say we, we have been part of systems and we have perhaps certainly I own for myself benefited from systems and perhaps also not fully stood up to address systems that were harmful. And something about that humility of, oh yes, we too, me too, not in the sense of being subject to, but actually we too having been part of it. Even in this community where sometimes we've recognized something unskillful has happened and in eventually moving to address it, we have seen, oh, that's a really challenging process. It takes a lot of time and energy. But when we allow ourselves to hear, not through blame and judgment, but a sense of mutual responsibility, that we all are part of the situation. It's not them out there. Although in specifics, of course, it is, and it's important to be able to see that, to recognize where there may be a victim of something that is needing to be addressed directly and firmly. But that at another level, even at a species level, we can see, okay, we too have been part of something and benefited from something that other species have not benefited so well from. And that, that calls forth, it seems to me, a sense of, of courageous response and a sense of, what do I want to dedicate my life to here? What do I want to look back at the end of my life and say, that's what I gave. That's what I offered my life to. Because as much as there's a, something just deeply uncomfortable and perturbing about owning our we-to-ness in the situation, our we are the traffic jam. We are the traffic jam. And we're in the traffic jam. And some people are driving really large vehicles and others are on bicycles in the traffic jam. There is a difference. And we are the traffic jam. That in that owning of that we-ness and they're not othering, they're not making the problem out there and splitting it off, judging, blaming and closing the heart, 
that actually an immense power comes forth into the human field that can address, can recognize and can address what needs to be addressed. And it's so important, as I said, to listen and to hear what comes forth that is changing radically and remarkably in wholesome and beneficial ways in our culture and our community. Not to be complacent about that or, or just, oh, that's good because there's room for more, actually plenty more. But uh, one piece I wanted to share in that regard, which I find myself still touched, and I have to confess a little pride with regard to because it's something from New Zealand where I come from, sort of. <laughs> sort of come from there anyway. I've been away from there now longer than I lived there. I wasn't born there, but in New Zealand a couple of years ago. <laughs> I do come from there too, it's true. In New Zealand in the last um, 30 years there's been a concerted effort to honour the treaty that was formed between the native people, the Maori, Aboriginal inhabitants of New Zealand, and the British colonial settlers who came in the uh, mid 19th century, not that long ago, in the 1850s, it was um, the treaty that was formed. It was mostly, as in these matters, disregarded by the uh, colonial um, powers, but in the last 30 years has been slowly more and more regarded in a transfer of resources, assets, and various things to the indigenous people of New Zealand, the Māori. And, um, and really not just assets, but actually honouring and including their culture. So it's actually become a symbol of social status in New Zealand now to actually be able to speak the language or some of it and to understand the cultural significance of circumstances and ways of engaging. And what I'm getting to is a process of beginning to incorporate the, 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 the Maori understanding and law and culture into the actual law of the land. So for some years anything official can happen in the Māori language and the officials have to go and find translators, not the person who comes and speaks Māori, which is kind of lovely, it seems to me. I'm getting to the piece I wanted to say. It's in this, that in the context of the Māori understanding of the relationship to land and the relationship to people, it's, it's described as, and it's in relationship to in this case, a river, where the statement is, and the understanding is, I am the river, and the river is me. And this particular river, of which this was said by the, the community tribe, the iwi, we would say, the Whanganui River, has been given legal person status in New Zealand. It's a remarkable thing that we give to corporations to make money with, but we have never quite understood that we could give this to anything. In fact, legal person status means there are a group of human beings who represent its interests, who can sue you if you throw rubbish in it, in the same way a corporation could. It's an amazing thing to realize this is a person, because personhood is something we simply give to certain persons, and in fact, historically, not to all, within the human community. And we can see, oh, that can extend. From that place, we could see a different world. From that place. And this is a modern Western country. Um, not without its challenges. But that sense of, oh, not only is there wisdom, but actually it can start to inform our modern 
and predominantly Western-oriented ways of thinking and engaging. And it seems to me that in the Buddha's vision and his teaching and his mission in the service of all beings, that we cannot circumscribe that vision in terms of what we have called human beings or even animals. But in fact, the very fabric of life is full of beings, we could say. And that the fruition, the fulfillment and the direction of the Buddha's teaching is to the well-being, the freedom of all of life. And that the orientation and the alignment of this practice and this teaching is towards that. It requires that we take care of ourselves and that we take care of whatever it is that we can take care of. And that we we really listen deeply without some idea of what that should look like but equally without any idea of what that may not or should not look like. To not place upon ourselves something which is beyond us but in order to take away from us what is possible for us. Again, to, to quote, I, I believe, and I don't have the quote downloading accurately right now, so I won't try. But there's a beautiful quote I think you may know, again, from Martin Luther King, where he speaks about the fact that we are afraid, not of our smallness, but of our greatness. No, it's Nelson Mandela. Sorry, I knew something wasn't quite tracking down right. Nelson Mandela, bless him. May he bless you. Thank you, yeah, yeah. I uh, was recently reflecting on his time in the, the prison in Robben Island and that remarkable spirit of courage and wisdom that he found in his long retreat. More than just a retreat, of course, a hard time, but something of it that he made use of. To make use of our time for regeneration, for nourishment, in the service of the greatest vision that we could imagine for the well-being of life. Seek out friends. Look for what supports you. Spend time in the natural world or amongst musicians or creative people or those who like poetry or literature or really detailed, precise and wonderful maps. All of that. <laughs> They're good people. There's so many good, kind people in this world. And invite them with you to also live what is most true and most important. And to find your way together. Find our way together forward from here. There is no other place to go and there is nothing else to do. Just this.
negotiating. <laughs> she thinks I'm finished. I'm not sure. Maybe I am. <laughs> Maybe she knows better than me. And what does she do? <coughs> no, she often does. <laughs> I will have a little more to say later. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.